Well, I want to uh, ask you to turn with me in a copy of the scriptures to the Gospel of John this morning, Gospel of John chapter 11. We're going to focus on verses uh, 28 through 44, and the entirety of chapter 11 is about uh, Jesus raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. We're going to jump of in the middle of this story. So let me, uh, let me try to just bring us up to speed quickly here before we turn to this passage. You remember that uh, Lazarus was a, a close friend of Jesus. He had two sisters, Mary and Martha. All of them, all of them were, were loved by Jesus. And Lazarus became ill and his sisters uh, sent for Jesus who was in another town a couple days away sent for Jesus to come, thinking that if Jesus was there, uh, he could make Lazarus well. He could heal Lazarus. Well, as the story goes, Jesus does not arrive in time, and Lazarus dies. A couple of days pass, and uh, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, I'm going I'm to go to Bethany, and I'm going to, I'm going to wake Lazarus up, and not really knowing what's going on. The disciples, what, what, what do you mean? Why do you need to go all, go all the way to Bethany to wake up a sleepy Lazarus? And uh, Jesus gently says to them, look, you, you don't understand, Lazarus is dead. And these striking words, he says, I am glad that I was not there, so you may believe. And he says, let's go to him. Now, by the time Jesus got to Bethany, uh, Lazarus had been in the tomb for for four days. While the family is in the process of mourning, Martha hears that Jesus at last is on his way to Bethany. And so Martha goes out to to meet Jesus and she, she shares her disappointment that Jesus did not come Sooner, believing that if Jesus had been there, her her brother would not have died. She also expresses her faith, her trust in Jesus, knowing that whatever he asks, the Father will give. And Jesus comforted her by saying, Martha, your brother, your brother will rise again. I mean, Martha shows, she knows her theology. She says, "I, I know that my brother will be raised Uh, on the the resurrection of the last day. And Jesus says, hang on. These remarkable words. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, uh, though, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he asks her, do you, do you believe this? And Martha says, yes, I believe, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, coming into the world. And that brings us to the part of the story that we're going to focus on today. But before we read, uh, a, a, little, a little church history for just a sec, okay? If you think about it, in, in every period of church history, the church has had to deal with, with various controversies that required the church to, to 
define and defend the truth. Those controversies have varied. You, know, you could look at the 16th century and see controversies related to how is, how is a person right with God? What is, what is true biblical worship? What is the Lord's Supper? The following century, controversy revolved around, you know, what's the nature of salvation? How does salvation work? In our own day, we can look at issues surrounding the authority of Scripture, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, issues pertaining to human sexuality. Well, in the early centuries of the church, a lot of controversy surrounded this question of the person of Jesus Christ. Just who exactly is he? We can see from the very beginning, uh, from the very founding of the Christian church, Christians worshipped Jesus Christ as God. It's very clear in the things that they said, the things they confessed, the way that they worshipped, the songs that they sang. They worshipped Jesus as Lord, even though, even though he had been with them and they could recognize firsthand that he was indeed truly a man. And so a lot of controversy in the early centuries circled around how to reconcile these, these two things. On the one hand, Jesus Christ is God our Savior. He is the Lord. And on the other hand, he is the son of Mary who grew up in this little town of Nazareth. He's clearly a man. And so in the 4th century, there was a, a group that came to be known as, as the Arians, right, who followed the teaching of Arius, who said, okay, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, he's, he's a powerful figure, he's a glorious figure, but he's not... He's not, exactly the, he's not exactly the same in nature as God the Father. In fact, Jesus Christ is the first created being through whom God created everything else. A glorious creature, yes, but a creature nonetheless. And there was another group in the early church known as the Docetists. Um, it's really a term that summarizes the thinking of, of different groups. But they all shared this one thing in common, that they denied the true and full humanity of Jesus. And so, docetus, it comes from a Greek word that means to seem or to appear. And you get the idea, docetism taught that Jesus merely appeared to be human. But they couldn't come to grips with the reality that God himself could, in the person of the Son, truly take on a human nature. And so some in the early church had a hard time, you see these, this, this tension, some on the one hand had trouble affirming that Jesus Christ is fully God, and others failed to understand that God in the person of the Son could really take on the fullness of our humanity. And so the church wrestled with, with both, and over time they came to confess, look, both of those views are wrong. Both of those positions get Jesus wrong. You might be wondering, okay, where, where's Jared going with this? What does this have to do with John chapter 11? Well, here's, here's where I'm going with this. I, I want us this morning, as we read this passage and, and reflect on it together, 
to be on the lookout for how Jesus' full humanity is on display in this story. He, he is a true man, yet without sin. And at the same time, he claims things and he does things which no mere man ought to claim or be able to do. The Christ, as Martha confesses him to be, is a savior who is fully human and fully divine. Which means, dear friends, if we are trusting in Jesus Christ, we have, we have a savior, we have a redeemer, uh, we have a friend, we have a brother who sympathizes with us, but one who is actually able to do something about the condition that we find ourselves in. And that's precisely what we need, isn't it? Not, not just someone who can sympathize with us, as important as that is, and also, on the other hand, not simply one with you know, raw power and authority who, who rules dispassionately and impersonally, but we need someone who draws near and has the power and authority to help us. And this is the Jesus we see in John chapter 11, the Son of God in our flesh, weeping with those who weep and exercising his authority to set captives free. And so with that in mind, let's read John chapter 11 and picking it up. We're going to pick it up in verse 28 and read through verse 44. Let's hear God's word together. <clears throat> when she, that's Martha, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not, come, had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to, Je to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Well, the humanity of Jesus is clearly on display in this story, is it not? And that fits right in with the testimony of the Gospels, doesn't it? Which tell us and reveal to us a true, real human being named Jesus. Somebody liable to weakness and limitation, hunger, emotion, and, and pain. This is, I think, part of the wonder of the incarnation, the remarkable condescension of the Son of God, that he entered into an estate where he experienced ungodlike things. I don't mean ungodly things, I don't mean sinful things, but things like pain, grief, anger, even death itself. The Son of God, we see here in John chapter 11, experienced grief and he experienced, we might miss it if we don't pay close attention to the story, he experienced indignation. He experienced I think the right word here is rage. The Son of God wept, and the Son of God experienced righteous indignation. Now, from, from other narratives, we, we see you know, Jesus got hungry, he, he got tired and needed at times to rest. He wept over the city of Jerusalem as he approached. He experienced, we saw a couple of weeks ago, the unimaginable grief that he endured in the garden of Gethsemane. And and the Gospels want us to understand, particularly the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus grew up and developed just like the rest of us, not from a state of um, uh, sinfulness to less sinfulness, but in the sense of growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, as Luke puts it in chapter 2. And so in our skin, without sin, he he grew to be a man. And all the while experiencing our weaknesses, our infirmities, feeling what we feel, experiencing what we experience. And in this story, he feels deep sadness, sympathy, and anger. Now, as we try to enter into this story, you've got to see the picture that John is painting for us. Everyone in this story is sad. Do you notice that as we read it? The scene of Mary coming to Jesus is, is nothing less than, than heart-wrenching. She gets to Jesus and she throws herself 
at his feet, weeping, saying, Jesus, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. And and weeping doesn't really get even close to what is actually taking place. She is wailing at Jesus' feet. And then there are people from town who are there to try to comfort Mary and Martha, and they too are weeping. And and then, finally, we see Jesus in this dramatic statement, the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35, Jesus wept. Tears welled up in Jesus' eyes and rolled down his cheeks at the sight of it all. At the sight of this community in mourning, at the sight of his friend buried within a tomb, Jesus cried tears of sympathy. But we need to go a step further than that. Not, not only did Jesus weep, Jesus, uh, John says in, in verse 33 that he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. Now, what does that mean? And what is John communicating there? This word, it only occurs three other times in the New Testament. And each time, the Greek verb that's used, it carries the idea of of righteous anger. Uh, The word is used in an ancient Greek poem to refer to the, the snorting of a horse. It's... Gives you the kind of word picture of what's going on here. The ESV notes all of this. If, you, if you're reading ESV, you'll notice that there's a footnote saying that uh, this could be translated, uh, Jesus was indignant. In other words, Jesus experienced anger. That's how it could be translated and understood. And I think that's the right translation. I've, I've told many of you before, uh, I think I've even read parts of this to, to you before. B.B. Um, Warfield's uh, article, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. I had a pastor years ago when I was in seminary tell me to sell my socks and underwear to get a copy of Warfield's uh, work so I could read The Emotional Life of Our Lord. Well, I found out that it's actually available online for free, so I didn't have to sell my socks and underwear, and neither do you. You can go online this afternoon if you want and read the emotional life of our Lord. I want you to listen to what he says as he's reflecting on John 11. He says, what John tells us is that Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of irrepressible anger. He did respond to the spectacle of human sorrow, abandoning itself to its unrestrained expression. With quiet, sympathetic tears, Jesus wept. But the emotion which tore his breast and clamored for utterance was just rage. And so in the face of death, Warfield's saying, in the face of death, seeing, seeing the effects of death, seeing what death meant for people whom he loves, Jesus was indignant. Now John says that this rage was in his spirit. It's a way of saying in 
in his heart, in his inner life, the, the emotion that will lead Jesus to action here is the emotion of anger. His heart burns with rage, we can say, seeing his friends bowed low with grief, their eyes filled with tears, and weighed down by the sorrow of this occasion, Warfield says his heart's response to that is nothing less than righteous rage. But we've got to ask the question, okay, why, what, why is Jesus indignant? What's, what's got him agitated here? And you read some folks today and they'll, they'll try to say Jesus is angry here because of unbelief. Uh, you know, people have seen the great signs and wonders that Jesus has already done, and they will see this sign and wonder that's about to take place, and some of them still disbelieve. And so some commentators suggest the object of Jesus' indignation is unbelief. I, I think that's so wrong. I think it totally misses the point of this story. Certainly there is unbelief in this story if you continue on, but it is not related to what John is, is unfolding to us here. And so what is, what is Jesus upset about? Uh, I think Warfield, again, is so helpful here. He says, in, in a nutshell, it is anger at death itself. And anger directed at the one who stands behind death. The one who possesses the power of death the devil. So at the sight of Mary weeping alongside of her companions, at the sight of the, uh, the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, Jesus is filled with irrepressible anger because it brought home to his heart the evil of death. Calvin, Calvin says in front of the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus, Jesus contemplated the violent tyranny of death, its, its unnaturalness, the misery of the entire human race was on the mind of the Lord, the Lord Jesus' mind. And, and his heart's response to that, John wants us to understand, is righteous indignation. And you've got to hear B.B. Warfield again. I don't usually read quotes to you, but... I just don't know how you top this. Listen to what Warfield says. He says, his soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but as it is presented throughout the narrative, a decisive instance and an open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. And so what John does for us in this story is uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation. Not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe, Jesus smites in our behalf. You hear what Warfield's saying? He's saying, Jesus fights for you. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for 
and with us in our oppression and under the impulses of these feelings, he has wrought out our redemption. Isn't that beautiful? I I love it. John wants to show us the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus for for you and me. He, He sees his dear friends weeping over the separation of death. And what is his heart's response? He is, not, he is not unaffected by human pain. His heart goes out to them. He, he feels with them the pain of loss. But his heart is also filled with rage. His, his friend is there in the tomb and his body is rotting. And John is saying, Jesus will not have it. He will not let things stay that way. And so friends, maybe, maybe some of us, before we move on in this story, to see what Jesus does, does maybe, maybe we need to hear this, that when we face death, when we face the death of a loved one, it, 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 is, it is okay. We can go further. We can say, it is right, in fact, to feel this way. When we see all the death in the world, it is right to feel this way. That We need to remember as Christians, God did not make us to die. We were not created to die. People are not supposed to get shot in the street. People are not supposed to get cancer and die. Children are not supposed to die in their youth. Death is not natural. It is an enemy. It is an intrusion upon God's good order. And so death as a consequence of sin represents a corruption of the way the world is supposed to be. And Jesus' response to this reality is weeping and indignation. And all I want to say is that's that's a perfectly appropriate response. It's how we may respond to death. Christians, let's start with mourning. Christians mourn. Yes, we do not mourn as those who are without hope. But Christians mourn. It's mourning mingled with hope. But that hope does not take away from the reality of grief and sorrow and sadness in the face of what death really means. In the face of all that death takes away and robs us of. And, and we might also say we may rightly feel anger over death. Now, we, will, we, we need to be careful here. We will never be righteously angry with the same purity of heart as Jesus. But surely Jesus gives us permission to be indignant in the face of death. Not the kind of indignation that says, uh, you know, I'm angry at you, God. Why, why would you allow something like this to happen? Why would you take him away from me? Why would you take her away from me? Not that kind of anger, but a truly righteous anger about what death does. And all that death takes away and all that it represents. Death is an enemy that is to be overthrown. And until death is finally fully turned back until that day, John 11 is reminding us that we will have occasions for weeping. 
We will have occasions as well to be deeply moved and greatly troubled when this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. And yet we we need to keep going with this story because I think the true wonder of this passage is not simply that Jesus sympathizes with us in our pain and gets upset in the face of, of the reality of death. We need a sympathetic high priest, yes. But we also need a savior who has the power and authority to do something about the problem of death that we all face. This is, this is, a, this is an existential problem that each and every one of us in this room must face up to. That we are all going to die. How do we think about death? How does the gospel teach us to think about death. And John wants us to understand that Jesus is the Savior who not only is able to sympathize with us in our pain and our grief, he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God who is able to rescue us because he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Now, I'm, I'm referencing that passage from Hebrews because. That line that's about Jesus radiating the glory of God. Because did you catch how Jesus said to Martha and his, his gentle correction of her, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? The very glory of God, the divine character made visible is about to be seen in the works of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus prays in verses 41 and 42. He, he prays out loud, not because the Father needs to hear, but so that others around him needed to he- because they needed to hear. And the first thing he says is, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Indicating that the Son has already prayed to the Father and received indication that the Father is going to grant his Son's requests. And then in verse 43, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now in, in, the, in the Greek, it's actually Lazarus and one word. And so if we wanted to try to capture it in English, it's something more like Lazarus outside. That's the idea. And then what happens? Lazarus comes out of the tomb, verse 44. The man who had died came out. You've got to pause there and simply ask the question, <laughs> who can do something like that? Who, who, who has the power of speech to produce what those words call for? You know, if you're a parent, you've, you've had to face the reality that your words don't have that kind of power. <laughs> I'm coming to terms with that every day. I can say, uh, kids, clean up. Kids, get ready for bed. Kids, come to the dinner table. And sometimes it happens. And sometimes it doesn't. Because my words don't have the power to effect what I will. But the words of the word made flesh... The speech of the Logos, the Son of God in our flesh, his words have that kind of power. 
As we sometimes sing, he, he speaks in listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. We, we, we've got we've to come to terms with this. Lazarus was dead. Princess Bride, he was dead, dead. Right? Uh, so much so that Martha is legitimately concerned that if you roll away that stone, in the words of the King James, he stinketh. It's going to smell to high heaven, Martha's saying in effect. But, Jesus says, move the stone away, Lazarus come out, and what was formerly a corpse rises, and Lazarus is restored to his family. See, what, what's impossible for us is possible with God. Raising someone from the dead is not a hard thing for God to do. That's one of the things John 11 shows us so very clearly. But there's more to appreciate in this story, in the Gospel of John as a whole. Okay? And this is, you might be thinking, why are, we, why are we looking at this passage on Easter Sunday thinking about the, the resurrection of Lazarus when what we really want to be focused on is the resurrection of Jesus? Well, it's a great concern. And here's the thing, in the Gospel of John, the resurrection or the restoration of Lazarus is deeply connected to the resurrection of Jesus. And the two are meant to be read alongside of one another and read in contrast to one another. And so we need to see, on the one hand, the, res the, the, the restoration of Lazarus to mortal life set in contrast to Jesus rising again from the dead to life everlasting. And John has a fascinating way of cluing us in. It's in the details. John doesn't waste words. It's in the details, indicating that he wants us to see these two stories beside each other. So notice when Lazarus comes out in verse 44, his, his hands and his feet are bound with <coughs> linen straps and his face is uh, it's wrapped with a cloth. Now this just reflects the traditional burial practices of the Jews at a time. A corpse would be laid down in the middle of a, a, a long white linen cloth and be folded down over the head, down to the feet. And then the ankles would be wrapped, tied together, and the arms would be tied together. And then a cloth, a separate piece, would be placed over the head. So you can picture this kind of big sack tied together at his feet and the arms tied together and the face covered with uh, a linen cloth. And here's the thing to see in this story. At the end, Lazarus, Lazarus needed to be unbound, didn't he? He's, he's tied up. He's tied up like a mummy. And that's, that, I think that's a legitimate way of putting it. So if the thought you have in your mind is, Lazarus come out and Lazarus walking out of uh, the tomb, you've, you've got the, the wrong picture. It, it's more like uh, he comes hobbling or even hopping out, wrapped up in grave clothes. And Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. You see, he, he's still bound in the bonds of death. Now, with that picture in mind, listen to John uh, chapter 19 when we go to 
the death and burial of Jesus, John 19 verse 40 says they, they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Okay, so Jesus was buried in the same way. That's what John's telling us. The way they buried Lazarus is the way they buried Jesus. Same way with cloth from head down to feet, bound at the ankles, arms wrapped up, linen shroud over his head. So Jesus was bound like Lazarus and put into the tomb. Okay, but then we get to John chapter 20 and the count of Jesus' resurrection. And you might wonder, why, why these details? Listen, John 20 verse 5. Stooping to look in, Peter and the disciple who reached the tomb first saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, that's, this is weird. John is, John is giving his account of the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's going on and on and on about burial clothes. Why? What's the significance of this? I think it's this. John is telling us Jesus' resurrection is not another Lazarus-style restoration to mortal life. Did you notice no one needed to unbind Jesus? See, friends, Lazarus was restored to, to life by the power of another. And set that in contrast to what the Gospel of John says about Jesus in, in some of his own words. Jesus thoroughly routes death. He says, no, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord, and I have the, the authority to, to take it up again. There's no scene recorded in the Gospel of John of Jesus hopping out of the grave, asking for somebody's help with the grave clothes. With Lazarus, yes, life has been restored, but death had not been conquered. But when Jesus is raised, we're meant to see Death itself has been vanquished. Death no longer has any claim on Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. No more need for grave clothes. Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 9, We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. He's conquered death. And so the grave clothes are set aside because he has brought life and immortality to light. And so in John 11, you see, we, we see the real humanity of Jesus facing death, seeing his friends. Jesus felt sympathy. He, he wept and he experienced righteous anger. So on the one hand, we've got to say, no to docetism, right? Jesus is not a fake human being. He's not human-like. He wasn't pretending to come in our flesh and be touched with the feeling of our affirmities. He is a real man 
who has been touched with the feeling of our experience. He has felt our grief, our pain, our sorrows. He has tasted death itself. But we've also got to say no thank you to Arianism, right? That, that he, he, he isn't a mere creature. He is the Son of God who is able to rescue his people from sin and death because he is precisely the Savior we need as the God-man. Let me, let me just try to illustrate it this way as we wrap up here. Let's, let's say, let's say you're, you're on a hike with your, with your wife, okay? And, you know, you're, you're on a narrow path, a single track trail, and your wife falls off the path into a deep ravine. And now she's down at the bottom and she, she can't get out. What do you want to do? You, you, you want to rescue her, right? You want to get her out of there. You want to come to her her aid. Arianism says, honey, it's going to be okay. I'm going to send the dog. Okay. Um, docetism, I don't know. It says, uh, well, I happen to have a hologram of myself here. I'll send him down and see what he can do. I mean, both of them are dead ends, right? Both of them do not communicate real care, concern, and love. And both of them are ineffectual in getting your life out of the ravine. Well, dear friends, here's the reality. The bride of Christ, by sin, fell into a pit. She fell into the pit of death, and she couldn't possibly do anything to get herself out. And to secure her rescue, you see, here's, here's the wonder of the gospel. It tells us that God himself came personally in the person of the Son of God. He came down for us, the God-man who can, who can sympathize with us and who has the power and authority to rescue and to redeem us in our flesh. The mighty captain of our salvation has conquered. He has won redemption for us sin is paid for death is conquered and the devil is disarmed and one day this is our resurrection hope brothers and sisters one day Jesus Christ will come back and as we confessed with the cry of command Did you catch that connection to John chapter 11 by the power of his voice the dead in Christ will be raised and along with those who, who will be transformed at his coming, we will together be with the Lord forever. And that is the great end of the gospel. It is being together in the presence of the Lord, beholding the, the glory of the Lord for all eternity. That day is coming. And that means that we can live in the meantime with resurrection hope. John tells us that he wrote this entire gospel, and that includes John chapter 11, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing have eternal life. Because believing connects you, unites you to the one who is the resurrection and the life. It makes you one with the one 
who is life itself. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending forth your Son to be our Savior. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to to come down and to stoop so very low, not only taking on our flesh, but by being obedient to the point of death on a cross. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you have raised him by the power of the Spirit so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you that in Jesus we have a Savior who sympathizes with us and who has the power and authority to rescue and redeem us. Our trust is in you, Lord Jesus. And we pray for any here who are considering the gospel and thinking about the identity of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And we pray that today your spirit would plant the seeds of the gospel in their hearts, hearts prepared to receive this good news that they too might know resurrection life and hope and join with the great assembly around the world and in heaven above, praising the God and the Lamb and the Spirit. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.